Father, I really find no place sweeter than meeting with you, and we would be doing ourselves a severe injustice if we did not pause to be with you in prayer. To in a single moment, as one body, open our hearts before you. I confess that we are dependent creatures, dependent to understand your word, dependent to be moved by it, dependent for you to apply it to us, and we ask that you would do those things this morning. As we open your word and witness a most horrific scene, we would see your love for us displayed. Father, we need you to do things that only you can do today. Things that can't be conjured up, things that um, don't stem from manipulation, things that are for our good and for your glory and that affect the very soul within us that feed our new creation as we Strive and desire to walk with you. Oh Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. For that is what we need. Your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke again. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22. So we finish up this rather lengthy chapter this morning, chapter 22, and hopefully get into chapter 23. And I'll just confess to you this morning, I was praying and sharing with the Lord that I would honestly rather be preaching a different passage today. Not because I don't think this is a good passage, or because I think um, God's Word can be ignored by any means, but Mainly because this is a heavy passage for me, an emotional passage for me, because our Lord here is um, in his trial. He's being falsely tried by wicked men, and I find it to be rather heavy and emotional, and just quite frankly, that's what we've been dealing with the last several weeks. Heavy text as our Lord marches on so consistently and so humbly and so graciously to the cross, and it's hard to deal with. Uh, honestly, over time, and spending so much time in it this week and and trying to study it and and think about it, I'm just confronted over and over and over with this resounding image of the glory of the Lord who is by certain standards an innocent man, yet being so uh, horrendously treated, and that for us. His suffering isn't just limited to the cross, but even as we see today, his suffering extends into the very moment of the garden as he's praying. And from that point, it, it goes on through his arrest and his trial and ultimately his death. So uh, we find another scene in which our Lord has humbled himself uh, to suffering at the hands of um, wicked, wicked men. I would highlight that this morning before we get into that text by reading First uh, Peter chapter two, I believe it's First Peter. Let me get over there and, and double check. First Peter chapter two. 
verse 22 and verse 23, Peter's talking about Jesus, likely in his own mind, remembering this very night that we're going to look at in Luke. And in verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Then more specifically, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What makes this passage this morning out of Luke 22 and 23, the whole trial of the Lord, makes it so remarkable is not the injustices of the, of the Jewish leaders or the Roman government. It's that Christ remains quiet, largely silent through the whole ordeal. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile in return. And when he's, he's threatened, he doesn't threaten in return. In fact, he doesn't even for a moment argue his case or plead for mercy or beg for deliverance. And, and here's one who is displayed all throughout the Gospel of Luke as one who has supreme intelligence and masterful teaching and unmatched logic and wisdom. And yet, throughout this moment, none of that comes to the surface. Of all the ways that he's been teaching, all the insight that he's shared, all the, the powerful words that he's, he's used to, to display to people throughout his whole ministry, to bring people into a saving understanding of himself, all of that he holds within himself, even in the face of such obvious injustice. The, the trial accounts here in Luke's Gospel are by far, far the longest accounts of the Lord's Passion narrative. The, much more attention is given to Jesus' trial than it is His crucifixion or than it is His resurrection or than it is his, his triumphal entry or than it is His arrest or any of those things. This is by far the lengthiest portion of it. And what is remarkable is that Christ is hardly found speaking at all. And he's spoken so much before. And he'll speak so much after. And yet for a glorious divine purpose here, he shuts his mouth. And in Luke's record, he, he really only opens it three times. And only once does he open it for more than just a handful of words. So I trust that you will begin to understand and see the weight of what is taking place here. As we pick up and read in verse 63, look with me now in Luke 22, verse 63. And we'll read through chapter 23, verse 25. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, 
you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from, from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by. Vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. And mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with, with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder. For whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The whole trial account of our Lord is rather difficult to piece together. In, in all the gospel accounts, it's relatively incomplete. And they all include different uh, details from one another. Some share uh, very similar uh, moments, but nonetheless, they all have differing details. Which clue us into the fact that the whole trial account of our Lord isn't exhaustively conveyed to us in any, any of the gospel accounts. Uh, what is necessary to understand the cruelty of the moment is, however, uh, shared with us. Matthew and Mark are similar in so many regards. Luke, on the other hand, is much more concise in his um, account, and he includes unique details that highlight the 
cruelty to Jesus. We begin in chapter 22, verses 63, 64, and 65, giving us the best description of our Lord's arrest that we have thus far and will have. If you go back to verse 54, when the Lord's in the garden and he's betrayed by Judas, it's simply told that they seized him and led him away and brought him into the high priest's house or palace, Caiaphas's home. This is where we find verse 63 and 64 and 65 taking place. Now remember again, here Jesus is totally alone. And in fact, Peter has just denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And so Christ, being denied even by his chief disciple, is found in these three verses, 63, 64, and 65, to be totally abandoned. And as is customary of Luke throughout the Passion narrative, he's very ambiguous about the people who are surrounding Jesus at this moment. We can conclude that it's likely the temple guard and their men who are holding Jesus at this point. Still, the same night as Jesus is praying in the garden, not much time has passed. In fact, this is right on the heels of Peter's denial. The same evening, and the word holding indicates they're guarding him, or supposed to be guarding him. He's isolated, kept likely in one of the cells of the high priest's home, and guards are all around with their weapons. They don't see Jesus as a maximum security threat, obviously, for they seize the moment to mock him. And the phrase mocking him is the theme of these three verses, but it's also the characteristic of the whole trial of Christ. The whole ordeal is set out by Jesus being mocked over and over and over and over again. And here you and I have this glimpse that is hard for us to swallow as born again believers. Where the king of glory who possesses all divine authority. Brought everything into creation and is here for the sole purpose that sinners might be saved and born again. Humbles himself as Philippians 2 says. Not only to the point of death which is the most uh, extreme example of his humility. But even to the point of submitting here. To this mockery. No king in, in his right mind. No earthly king. Would stand to be mocked. Especially while his kingdom is intact. What humility of Christ is on display here. For his kingdom is not of this world. And it is very much intact. And at any moment he could call down any, any number of angels to his defense. And in fact he has no need for angels to defend him. One day, his power will be on full display, Revelation tells us, when he merely opens his mouth and vanquishes his enemies. And that king of glory and that king of splendor and that king of, of power and that king of mercy and love and grace is here willingly allowing himself to be mocked. And don't, don't disregard the word willingly. These men are prime examples of the type of people who will be interacting with Jesus during his trial. These guys in verse 63, 64, and 65, they're doing roughly five different things. They're mocking him, which is an emotional ordeal. They want to ridicule him and tear down his, his psyche. They want to tear down his emotions. They want to bring him as low as possible. They beat him. Physical harm. Our Lord in this moment is subjected to not only emotional abuse, but physical abuse and even spiritual abuse. 
they beat him. Matthew and Mark say they spit on his face and they strike him with their hands. Luke spares us some of those horrific details. But we know what he means by that phrase. The Lord is a helpless prisoner, likely chained. Taking body strikes from these guards. Unable to defend himself. Verse 64, he's blindfolded. He's reduced to a guessing game. He's having his senses robbed of him. I don't know about you and I, but if I'm in prison and I'm, I'm being beaten, I certainly don't want my eyes to be taken away from me. It makes me feel much more helpless, much more out of control. They taunt him in verse 64. Prophesy, you prophet. And what game are they playing? Tell us who it is that's going to hit you next. Tell us who it is that's gonna, that has just struck you in the face. Verse 65 is the highest insult. They blaspheme him. Saying many other things against him. Likely cursing him. Any kind of humiliating, degrading, scornful remarks they could lob at this man, they will. Christ isn't surrounded by friends here. He's surrounded by people who would do him harm emotionally, physically, and even spiritually if they could. It's telling to us that Luke uses this word uh, blaspheming him in verse 65 because the guards certainly don't think they're blaspheming God. But Luke knows who Jesus is and that's what he's conveying to us. This is a statement of divinity. And, and the one who has all this divine authority that we've referenced is here enduring, willfully, humbly enduring blasphemy to his face. Prophesy. I thought you were the Christ. Aren't you the king? Perform a miracle for your, yourself. This will extend even to the cross. If he's the son of God, let him save himself. This is where our Lord finds himself. While awaiting an unjust trial that's right on the horizon. His suffering has already begun. This is happening at night because by the time we come to verse 66, day breaks. And as day breaks, the Jewish leaders begin to convene together. There's this pattern that goes through. We deal first and, and primarily here with Jewish law and trials and prosecution. The Jews will be the driving force throughout the rest of the trial. But then it alternates between Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. But we begin here in, in a structural sense with that driving force that will be the background noise of the whole conviction and charge of Christ. Jewish law, by verse 66, dictated that capital crimes be tried only in the daytime. And so here in verse 66, they're trying to keep with their Jewish custom, their Jewish law, but by the end of their trial, they've totally abandoned it. Because also in Jewish law, uh, you were not allowed to pronounce 
a sentence on a criminal the same day that you tried him. And yet they disregard that. In fact, they compromise in several ways. So verse 66, day comes and, and Matthew and Mark tell us there's been a small trial at the high priest's house during the night, but this is a formal trial. They're just going to confirm what they've already decided in their minds. And so the assembly of the elders of the people gather together. It tells us something, the language Luke uses right there. These are the representatives of the people, which we can symbolically carry out. What is taking place here is symbolic of all humanity. The Bible not only says the Jews are responsible for crucifying Christ, and it doesn't only say the Gentiles are responsible for crucifying Christ, it says we're all responsible for crucifying Christ. This is the Sanhedrin, the governing body that's going to try Jesus here, but make no mistake, they represent not only their Jewish constituents, but all of humanity. So they assemble together, both the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, and they led Jesus away to their council. Again, undertones of the willingness of Christ should be pointed out here. For he is willingly led just as much as he was willingly arrested. And just as much as he's willingly mocked. We are never to forget that these chains are holding Christ. It is not chains that hold Christ in custody. It is the will of God. And a love that issues from a divine heart that cares for you and I. And so they may think they're leading him away against his will. He's actually seen his will fulfilled. They lead him away to their counsel. Luke uses this specific language here to draw separation between us and them. Or between Jesus and them. Or believers in them. It is their counsel that he goes to. He puts the, the responsibility now squarely upon the Sanhedrin's shoulders. This is their doing. Their desire. Their trial. Their judgment. Their counsel. And they ask their first question in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. Christ is the Greek equivalent to Messiah. And Messiah in the Old Testament is anointed one. Anointed one who's sent from, from God. And they knew they were supposed to be watching and ready for the, the Messiah. And they've obviously understood, uh, although they don't believe it, they've obviously understood that at least Christ's works have been declaring Him to be the potential Messiah. The potential Christ. In fact, Peter draws that out in his sermon in Acts 2. Verse 22, talking about Jesus, he says, He was a man attested to you, proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, Peter's point there is, it was absolutely clear through the works of Christ alone that he is from God, that God confirms him, that he is the Christ. Well, these guys knew exactly what to ask Jesus. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. We know the rumors surrounding you. We know what the signs could be pointing to. We want to know clearly and plainly. It's earthly ingenuity. They're trying to trap Jesus in his own saying. 
But the Lord said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. This is the first of three responses by Christ, and it's the most lengthy. And he first tells them, If I spoke to you about who I am, you're not going to believe. And why would he say that? It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You would think... Uh, Maybe, or the thought has been proposed, that he would stand here and take the opportunity and say, I am absolutely the Christ. That's not what he says. He says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe. And the reason is because you haven't already believed. He says the same thing when he's arrested and he highlights the injustice of, of his arrest. And In fact, in verse 53, he says, I was with you day after day in the temple and you did not lay hands on me. You've heard me teach. You've seen me work. You've seen, seen me move these last several years. There's no secret here. I've consistently done everything in the open and everything in, in the day, daylight. And if I tell you now, you're not going to believe because you haven't already believed. It's the same kind of concept when um, the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man is in hell and says, Send back Lazarus to tell my family that all this is real. Abraham in that story responds, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody raised from the dead. It's the same principle right here from Christ. If you're not going to believe the works I've already accomplished and the teaching that I've already shared, the things that I've already done, the person that I've already been, you're not going to believe me now. He goes on in verse 68 and he says, And if I ask you, you will not answer. If I ask you for the truth, you're going to lie. If I ask you what you really think, what you really believe, you're not going to be straightforward and honest. In other words, you've already made up your mind. You're bent on rejection. You're bent on unbelief. And what is characteristic of you people by this point is you are totally abandoning the truth for your own agenda. Even if I ask you, you won't be honest. So he changes the perspective in verse 69. But, this contrasting word, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's this statement of um, so, uh, 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 it's a solid statement of what the future is going to be like and what the impending future is. In other words, everything's already set in motion. And if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. Everything's already set in place. And the Son of Man will be sitting at the right hand of the power of God. It's this realization of Christ That in the impending suffering that's on the horizon, there's this anticipation of rest, honor, glory, and authority. He knows the outcome of what lies ahead. And the resolve that was determined in the garden when he says, let this cut pass from me, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours, that resolve has gotten him to this point and gets him through this point because he knows what comes next. I will be quiet and listen, and falsely accused and crucified, because I know the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It also tells us 
of the complete injustice that's taking place in this moment. Lest we forget it, Christ reminds us He is the very one who will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And yet now, He humbles Himself to these illogical, unreasonable, wicked, religious hypocrites. They understand what he is saying to them in verse 69. So then they ask their second question. Are you the son of God then? Is that what you're claiming? Now for you and I on this side of the cross in the New Testament and Jesus' life, we automatically equate Messiahship or Christ with sonship. That wasn't the case for Jews, especially at this time. Messiahship and divine sonship with the Father were not necessarily the same thing. And there's been this progression now through, uh, throughout these few verses already. Verse 64, the prophets or the, the soldiers are, are mocking his prof, prophetic office uh, that he claims to be a prophet. Then they, the Jewish leaders want to know about his messiahship and, and now they want to know about his sonship. The progression has increased. And so forget if you're the Christ or not, are you claiming to be equal with the Father? Are you claiming deity? Are you claiming eternal existence? How can you say that you're going to sit at the right hand of the power of God? This is the main question surrounding Jesus. Not only for them, but for you and I. We have the same question that Peter had. We have the same, we have the same question this Jewish religious governing body has. Who is Jesus? And we have to ask the same questions. And they're forced to ask this question by Christ's response in verse 69. Are you then saying you are God's son? And Jesus, in a very straightforward, simple way, so as not to incriminate himself, says... You say that I am. I think that's a loaded statement. I think it's much more loaded than what we realize. I think he's saying not only yes, but also the way you're treating me tells the whole world that I am the Son of God. The suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. The Messiah who was meant to come and give his life for the sins of humanity. The way that God would redeem and forgive sinful people. The very way that you're treating me is fulfilling prophecy. And you declare not by your words only. But by your actions. That I am the very son of God. But they won't have any of that. And by verse 71. They think they have gotten what they need. What further testimony do we need? We've entrapped him. We've caught him. He's owned up and fessed up and confessed. And we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Oh, take warning what sin does to the heart of humanity. Here in this moment, they've had the truth of God proclaimed before them. And yet seeking their own prideful, selfish agendas. They can't hear it. 
And they can't see it. And so they don't know it. Thinking they act on God's behalf, they miss out on God right there with them. From a legal point of view, this is far less than required proof to convict somebody. In, in fact, there's, there's no evidence here. The whole trial of Christ is a sham. And it's made abundantly clear from the very beginning. They have predetermined the outcome of the Lord. And they go through formalities, even compromising on those formalities, so that they think they can get what they think that they need and what they think they've been watching for, a blasphemous confession. I want you to flip over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Because I'm convinced this is what the. Religious leaders are. Believing and declaring. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 1. If a prophet. Or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. And keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. So to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. I think it's likely they're thinking that verse in their mind. Here's one who's done some signs and some wonders. And they've come true. And he's declared himself to be a prophet. And he is a dreamer of dreams. And even though his signs have come true, he's calling us to follow a different God, isn't he? He's calling himself God. And calling us to follow him. So we do what Deuteronomy 13 tells us to do. We put him to death. And we purge the evil from among us. Because after all, as that verse says, Deuteronomy 13, God is testing us. And Jesus must be this test. And so to declare our allegiance to God and pass the test, we're going to kill Him. The problem with that is, Jesus is God. And the problem with that is, they do not know God to know what is from God and what isn't from God and what's a test from God and what is real from God. And the other problem with that is, is their religion has been so corrupted by falsity and hypocrisy and, and rituals that they can't tell when the truth of God stands right in front of them. In other words, as we come to the end of verse 71 and they 
think they found what they need to found to declare Christ blasphemous against their religion. They likely think they're keeping the law. And we should take warning. That unless we begin to make our walk with God religious rituals, we might be found opposing Him in the same manner. These religious leaders likely are convinced they're doing the right thing and they are doing the wrong thing. And they will be held responsible for it. Back to Acts 2, Peter says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God, but he also says you crucified him. We take our eyes off of God and put them upon what we think is right, maybe even our traditions, we might be found opposing God even the same way these guys are. And so thinking they're right, they're doing what is wrong, they declare Christ blasphemous. I had really hoped to get through the rest of this because it carries the same theme with it and then quite frankly, I don't want to spend another week on something so weighty. The next few passages, he comes before, Jesus comes before Gentile leaders, Pilate. And then he shifted again before Herod Antipas. And then he comes again before Pilate, before he's finally condemned to crucifixion. And what we see encountered with the Jews here is only a foretaste of, of the kind of injustice and uh, unreasonable logic that will Come to pass as he's tried before Gentiles. And what happens before the Jewish council is the same thing that happens before the Greek councils. The prefect, Pilate, a wicked and a cruel man. The whole theme is this right here, Isaiah 53, 7. As we find Isaiah 53 becoming so much more clear and clearer and clearer as we walk through this text. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So he put him to grief. So that his soul makes an offering for guilt. He bore the sin of many. He makes inter intercession for the transgressors. The glaring reality of the trial of Christ is not simply the idiotic injustice. But it's the fact that Christ never once defends himself. In fact, he gives answers he knows will incriminate himself. He opens not his mouth for you and I. So that he might be labeled and counted with the transgressors. So that he might die for the injustice that's been lobbed upon himself. 
our Lord is beaten, is mocked, he's blindfolded, he's taunted, he's blasphemed, he's falsely accused, falsely tried. By the time this council brings Jesus to Pilate, there's new unproven accusations brought against him. He's mocked again before Herod Antipas. Beaten by his soldiers, treated with contempt, dressed shamefully in a, in a humorous robe. And he's quiet. He's quiet precisely so that he may be treated as you and I deserve to be treated. He's quiet so that precisely he may die for us, church. Oh, in such a weighty passage as this, as, as we find the Lord of glory who deserves all praise and adoration and worth, as we, as we find him humbling himself to the the punches of finite men, creatures of the dust, as we find him mocked, verbally ridiculed, we also find this glimmer of glory that tells us just how much God must love us. And just how much God must care for us. Just how much Christ is willing to endure. So that his crucifixion is guaranteed. And our sin put upon him. And the wrath of God poured out on him. Out of such a tragedy, we find such a beautiful picture of how much Christ wants you to be restored to Him in salvation. Oh, I, I pray that we see that. I pray we see how willing Christ is, how, how much He will endure so that He might die for us who, who do the same things to Him. These Jewish leaders, as we've looked at this morning, that's as far as we've gotten, as we look at them, they have obviously abandoned and forsaken truth for the sake of their own agenda. And does that not describe you and I? We are Romans one people, changing, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for creatures resembling idols resembling mere creatures. We give up truth for a lie and we exchange the glory of God for things that are far lesser, including our own prideful agendas and lifestyles. And that's exactly what these Jewish leaders are doing. And it's for people such as I, Christ, and, and as such as us that Christ endures this behavior that we might be forgiven. He endures in this divine mystery. He allows and endures injustice. So that justice may be dealt out upon him. So that those who are unjust may be made righteous. And we find nothing less than that in these texts. What supreme love God must have for us in Christ. 
Father, we are humbled by a passage of Scripture like this. Oh God, I wish Lord, I wish my sin hadn't have caused you to endure such suffering. Oh, and I think and I read about your mockings and your beatings and your false accusations and your your abandonment and being surrounded by hostile men who genuinely hate you and abandon justice and truth. And I think that you're doing all of this to redeem us. Lord, I'm not worthy. What's even more remarkable is you know I'm not worthy and you endure and you die anyways. I don't like this truth, Christ. I don't, I don't like to read about this, but I'm thankful for it. I just wish I wasn't the cause of it. I wish it wasn't necessary, but sin and its disgusting, grotesque existence had to be dealt with, and in your love you've dealt with it, and we thank you. Even as we read of these moments before the cross, we see a divine love that is supernatural extended towards the ungodly. And we thank you and we praise you for enduring such hostility, for being wounded for our transgressions and in your wounds healing us. We thank you. And we praise you. And we want to be with you. Oh, bless your word. And let it have its full effect upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.